for the last uh, two Saturdays and one more next week. I'm on the rounds of CU house parties. Scott is away this weekend with Aberdeen. I've been away with Dundee and Strathclyde and then uh, some of the Edinburgh CUs next uh, Saturday. I've been really encouraged by uh, what I've seen. I have the ability to compare over uh, numbers of years and there is a keenness and there is an alertness and there is a devotion to the Lord Jesus among these uh, groups. Yesterday, in one of my talks, one of the young lads um, stopped me, put up his hand, and he said, can you stop and tell us what the gospel is? A great, don't any of you get any ideas? What a great question. I mean, I was talking about that, but he, it wasn't that I wasn't talking about that. He just hadn't fully understood what I was saying. And he said, look, stop. Can, we, can you tell me what it really means to be a Christian? And when an opportunity like that comes up, you've got to grasp it. And we spent 10 or 15 minutes talking about what it means to be a Christian with me answering and him coming back at me and me answering and him coming back at me. And we got onto the ground that I think it was new in a sense for, for him and some others that Christianity is not about believing a set of truths or creeds or having the Bible as a manual and Jesus as my friend. It's not even about having Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. It is about having Jesus inside of you in His Spirit and all that He achieved through His death in bearing sin and bearing judgment and all that He achieved through His resurrection, life and everlasting life comes inside of you in the person of His Spirit. Faith is real, living, physical, tangible inside of you. And he said to me afterwards, is that really true? It is true. When I was driving back last night, you're going to hear a few stories from yesterday because yesterday merged into today due to various uh, issues going on on the roads and me turning left instead of right. Just to tell you, if you come back from Rowanden and Youth Hostel and you come to the end of Loch Lomond, don't turn right. Because <laughs> that takes you to the back of side of Glasgow, which is very hard to get out of as well. So I came back last night and I stopped the car to get a coffee at Stirling service station and my text comes off and somebody's died. It happens. It happens in my job, it happens in my life. Somebody died to, who almost certainly said no to Jesus. And then, uh, to my regret, I listened to Radio 5 Live and guess what it was about? The election. And it was chaos and disorder on the radio and people scoring points off each other, people trying to force people to say stuff so they could set them up. And heaven help us. It would be an optimist to think that we will be in a better position come the 13th of December than we are now. Thank God that Jesus Christ is the king of the nations. Especially now in the West. Thank God that Jesus Christ is king over death. 
for every one of us. And thank God for the gospel that we do not need to, if we know Jesus, walk one day on this earth without him inside of us. One of the great paradoxes and a question that I'm wrestling with, and I've asked a number of you for the answer to it, why is it, how is it that if you're not a Christian, you can survive in the world? How is it? How is it that you can just get through life? One of the students uh, yesterday was telling me that he had a dozen of his mates around for dinner and they decided to have a no-holes-barred evening talking about the reality of life. So he kicked off as a Christian and he spoke about some stuff in his life that was bleak and hard and tough. And so it went that night, the only night I think they have ever done this, it went round the table and it was uh, bleak, bleak stuff. And it's made a big impact on that group of people. And I think the answer to the question, how on earth do people survive without Jesus? Is that the devil puts scales over our eyes. So we do not see the world as it is. When it takes some bottle to face up to reality, Why is it that in a Christian community like Chalmers, there are so many issues to be caring for? That's not because we all are particularly weak or vulnerable. It's because we don't mask it or hide it or pretend it's not there or cover it up with other stuff. I'm looking forward to Christmas, but I'm not living for it. And it strikes me on this Remembrance Sunday as we face the reality of shock and awe and war and fury and disease and death and all the stuff that is just normal in this world and the fact that mortality is still running at 100%. Doctors take note. Ministers take note every human being take note that having Jesus Christ as your Savior is a magnificent thing. Yesterday, there were lots of uh, new Christians, and new Christians always strike older Christians like me with their zeal and their passion and their alertness and the desire for knowledge. And it struck me chatting to one of these new Christians yesterday that he was so excited to be a Christian and not excited. I mean, I've been to these events in the past over the years and there's a kind of uh, falseness around. Here's an example of how the Christian students are changing. Yesterday we were in Rowan Denham, which is beautiful on the east shores of Loch Lomond, and the student who was praying said, thank you God for putting us in this marvelous place today with this marvelous creation and then you kind of leave it at that. But she said, which is broken and disordered and flawed, and there will be a glorious new creation that will make this place look like a shadow. And then she moved on to life. It's great. It's powerful and it was strong. 
I think sometimes as Christians, I think as evangelical Christians, as Bible-loving Christians, we sometimes are afraid to talk about the majesty and the magnificence and the glory of the person of Jesus and the fact that we don't simply know him. He's not simply our companion. He is in us, in us, physically, literally, spiritually. So today, I want us to focus on just a tiny bit of who he is. We're going to pretend to cover a number of verses, but we're only going to cover a little bit of one verse. Don't tell the other preachers. They're all away. So I'm going to do this just for today. So we're meant to be going back to Mark chapter 1 and just a few verses, but we're going to have even fewer. And it's really important that we get really scrolling down on one marvelous truth in these verses. So let's read Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. And you better not tell them. I'll know if you have. Mark chapter 1, verse 9, page 836. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth uh, was what John Buchan, I think it was John Buchan, the writer, would have called a one-horse dorp. In other words, a nothing place. Now, I'm not going to give any parallels in Scotland, but Nazareth was a no place where a nobody called Jesus came from. It was as humble a town as his humility as a servant. He was baptized. That's a shock. Why is he baptized? By John. Surely it should be John being baptized by Jesus. Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan, and immediately when he came up out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens being torn open, and the verb is ripped apart. The same verb as the ripping of the curtain after Jesus died, and the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. I think an audible voice to those who were there, I think there would have been people around, I don't think it's a voice in Jesus' head, it's an audible voice, and the Spirit would be visible in the dove. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by uh, Satan. We want a time to look at that. Um, We were meant to 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted without sin, parallel 40 years in the wilderness for God's people in the Old Testament, being tempted and giving in to sin and grumbling. Jesus was with the wild animals, and the point is they didn't eat him, and the angels were attending to his needs. There's a little cameo of Jesus. If you've ever thought, is Jesus is Jesus in his perfect divinity? needful of an angel to minister to him? Yes. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, 
If you look at the back page of the service sheet, it will be of little use to you. But let's pretend anyway, because I don't believe you're not going to tell them. I really don't. Every time I say that, it's like uh, saying to a two-year-old, don't put your finger in the socket. And for the whole of the rest of the day, the finger kind of hovers over the socket. Now, why is Jesus baptized? Now, you know the answer to that if you're a Christian. Here it goes. Jesus is baptized to show his identification with human's plight and human sin, and he is baptized, a sign that he will go to the cross and be the sin-bearer and the wrath-bearer. That sounds awfully forensic and awfully neat. It's extraordinary that Jesus is baptized. Right at the start of his ministry, he walks up to John the Baptist, and he stands in front of him, and he says, baptize me. And John obeys. Jesus is baptized. That's a foreshadowing of the cross, where he will bear our sin and bear God's judgment. And when he came up out of the water, verse 10, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. The Spirit descending on Jesus, that is a a parallel, I think almost certainly, to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when the Spirit of the living God hovered over the water at creation. Here, the Spirit of the living God hovers over the waters of Jesus' baptism at the beginning of the start of what will lead to the new creation. Chapter 1, verse 15, just glance down, the new kingdom has come in Christ. This is a new beginning. Who is present at this new beginning, at this significant moment in salvation history? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. At creation, Father, Son, and Spirit are in consort, in harmony. Father, Son, and Spirit in consort and harmony at Jesus' baptism and in the new creation where we will live and reign uh, with them. The presence of Father, Son, and Spirit at this moment in salvation history witnessed by those who were there and witnessed by us not only signifies the massive importance of what is happening, but also the united commitment of Father, Son, and Spirit to the mission of Jesus. There is complete unity in the Godhead as to what Jesus had come to do. It is divine initiative, planning, fulfillment, and purpose. The Godhead sovereign over history, intervening in history to redirect the course of history. Now, we might look on and wonder if those who were witnessing these events firsthand would have done. But there is to a personal and intimate dimension to this. It is the Lord Jesus who looks up and sees heaven being torn open himself. And of course, it is the Father who addresses the Son. You are my beloved Son.
Now, why is this important? I think we're meant to see here and elsewhere in the Gospels the absolute intimacy and oneness between Father, Son, and Spirit. In order for us to appreciate the awfulness of how that relationship was ripped apart at the cross for you. It's not just a father giving their son. It's the Godhead ripping itself apart for you. It's extraordinary. And then the voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let me give you a more literal translation, just better for us to get our heads around. You are my son, my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now that statement is of huge significance as we will see in a moment. And we're going to just focus on one phrase in it. You are my son. That's all we're going to look at. But let's not just miss out the obvious, simple affirmation of a father to a son. Now, I've asked a few of you this week, if you think that's irreverent, you've comforted me by saying no. As a father, you say things like, you are my son, I love you, I am pleased with you. I did caveat that in service one in the presence of my two boys. Is that not what you say? I mean, you say other things to them too. You're a rascal. You're my son. I love you. You've done well. Then is it wrong to appropriate on a cosmic scale and we're not talking about the casual intimacy, the casual relationship. We're talking about on a cosmic scale the, the pleasure of the Father and the Son, the love of the Father for the Son, the identification of the Father with the Son. All of this to show us the extraordinary cost when that relationship was severed. Now, if you were one of Mark's original readers and a Jew, you would be really familiar with a style of teaching called rabbinic teaching. And, and what happened is that the rabbi would teach some theological point using three proof texts or three texts from the Old Testament, the different areas of the Old Testament, and then they would go down inside these uh, different uh, areas. So, you are my son. That's a quotation from Psalm 2, and we'll come to that in a minute. Um, the son whom I love, the beloved son, is probably a quotation from Genesis uh, when Abraham was asked to sacrifice his beloved son. And with you I am well pleased is a quotation from one of the servant songs in Isaiah. And all that the Old Testament says about the king who will come 
is alluded to by the words from the Father, you are my son. And all that the Old Testament says about the one who will give up his own beloved son. And remember, Abraham never did. God wanted him to be willing, and God provided a lamb. But there was no lamb for Jesus, for he was the lamb. You are my beloved son, picks up all of that stuff from the Old Testament, and with you I am well pleased, picks up all the stuff about the suffering servant. And these uh, lines of prophecy and teaching in the Old Testament, they're like motorways or, or highways that run through history, the king, the servant, the sacrificed son, and they are not compatible. The king is a servant, the servant is a king. The king and the servant sacrificed, and all of them are fulfilled in Jesus. Now, here's what we could do if we got to verse 15 today. I could take you to Psalm 2 and prove to you that this is a quotation from Psalm 2, and we would tick that box, Jesus is the king. We all know he's the king. We all know he's the Christ. And then I could take you to Isaiah 42, and we could take that box that he is the servant. And then I could take you to Genesis 22, and we could take the box that he's the sacrificed son. But we do not, if we do that, get the depth and the reality and the extraordinary stuff that is behind each of these statements. And I want to send you home today uh, remembering that, like that student God willing now in uh, Strathclyde, that Jesus lives in you. And I want you to understand what it means that the King, the Messiah, lives in you. So we're just on the words, you are my son. You are my son, God says to Jesus. Now turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 2, page 448. Now, we'll read the, the whole psalm, but let's do it in bits at a time. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Let's read that. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, I'll explain that in a minute, and against his anointed, I'll explain who that is in a minute, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords uh, from us. How could we summarize these three verses? Something like, the world rebels against the Lord and his anointed. Okay, that's what they're saying. Who is the Lord and his anointed? The Lord is Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God. That's capital L-O-R-D in our Bibles. And the Lord's anointed is the Lord's Messiah. It means exactly the same thing. The word Messiah, M-E-S-S-I-A-H, comes from transliterating the Hebrew word for anointed in the original languages. I don't really know what that means, but it means that they are the same. Okay? I don't know what transliterating means. I just copied that out of a book. Messiah, anointed, the Christ, they mean exactly the same thing. 
There are plenty of PhD Hebrew scholars here who are going to pick me up on that afterwards. I saw them talking to their neighbor just now. <gasps> it's worrying. They mean the same thing. Messiah, Christ, anointed. The Lord's anointed is the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's warrior king. The world rebels against the Lord and his Messiah king. How does God respond to this human rebellion? Verses 4 to 6, he laughs and he judges. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy uh, hill. And then in verses 7 to 9, uh, the Messiah king speaks. Verses 7 to 9 are direct speech of the Messiah king, recalling in the Messiah king's own voice when God made the decree that you are my son. So the Messiah king speaks, verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The king is speaking of the decree that made him king. The Lord said to me, the Lord said to me, Yahweh, Jehovah said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces with a potter's vessel. Psalm 2 verse 7 is a critical verse in the Bible. The Messiah King says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And remember it's in Psalm 2. It's in Psalm 2. Hundreds of years before Mark chapter 1 was written hundreds of years before Jesus. Now, here's the complex bit for this morning. So wake up if you've fallen asleep. When you hear a statement like, you are my son, we immediately think of paternity or genetics. In the ancient world, sonship had much more to do with function or calling in life. So you might see it occasionally today, uh, a little less and less. You'll see, a, say, a hardware shop, um, John Smith and Sons. That doesn't mean to say that John Smith has sons. It means that John Smith's sons are in the family business. Okay? Sonship in terms of function. Very few of you will do the same job as your parents. In the ancient world, between 95 and 97% did the same job as their parents. If your father was a baker, you were a breaker. That's why Jesus was called son of a carpenter. He was a carpenter. Your identity was bound up, not just with paternity, but primarily with calling and with function. Now, here's the point. This is the hard bit to get your head around. God is the king. God is the king. God rules. God is sovereign. And when God anoints a king... When God says, you are my son, he is saying, I am investing in you kingship. It's not paternity or genetics. It's function, rule, responsibility. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It is not natural birth. It is not new birth. It is sonship in the sense of being appointed to, anointed to the function and the rule of God. Sometimes we think of God the Father as the majestic person in the Trinity, the awesome one, the wrathful one. And we think of God the Son 
as the benign and loving shepherd in the Trinity. And God the Holy Spirit as the agent in the Trinity that makes it all real. We need to make God the Father more personal, God the Son more majestic, and God the Spirit both. Son of God here means function, not paternity. There is a relationship between God the Father and God the Son that bears something of the relationship between a human father and a human son, but primarily Son of God means function of God on the earth. Let me trace for you quickly the use of this language through Scripture. Now, we're not going to turn to these pages, so keep awake. This is marvelous. I think it's marvelous, and it's always good if the preacher thinks it's marvelous, because I think Jesus is marvelous. Yesterday, after that boy's question and the young Christian that took me for a walk. He asked me to take him for a walk and I help him with his questions, but really he took me for a walk and helped me love Jesus again. I do love Jesus very much. I love his majesty, his power, his authority, his glory, his shepherd care. Here is Nathan the prophet speaking to King David, 2 Samuel 7 and verse uh, 11. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then Nathan says to David, the would-be king, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house, dynasty, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. That's around 1000 BC when David reigned. And David wrote probably Psalm 2 shortly after these events. I think it's probable that Psalm 2 was David's coronation psalm. So David the king writes in Psalm 2, David the king, of whom Nathan had spoken and said, I will be to him a father and he shall be to you a son. David writes Psalm 2 and David sings, I will tell of his decree. The Lord said to me, King David, you are my son, and I have begotten you. I have given you kingly rule on the earth. And so it seems that Psalm 2 is about David. But in 2 Samuel 7, Nathan the prophet had been speaking not about David's offspring, of whom Dave, about David's offspring when he said, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. I think Nathan was speaking about Solomon, David's son, the one who built the mighty temple. So is Solomon the anointed one? Now you know the answers. What's the answer? Always. 
Jesus. Even the little boy, when the children's address had a picture of a fridge, and the minister said, what's that, Jimmy? And he said, Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. But you know, we get there sometimes by drawing a pencil sketch or a dotted line or a neat equation. There are so many pretenders to this throne. There are so many centuries of longing. It wasn't Solomon. It wasn't Solomon. Hundreds of years passed, and the great prophets like Isaiah, here's Isaiah, Christmas text that we often rip out of its context. The context of Isaiah 9 is the whole of world history and salvation history. The peoples have walked in darkness. They've seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, of them has light shined. And then these marvelous words, for to us a son is born. To us a son is given. And you immediately think of a baby in a manger where there was no room in the inn. You're not meant to think that. You're meant to think of a king. And you're going, no, you're not. You're meant to think of a baby. You're meant to think first of the Messiah King. And then you'd have come to terms with the fact that that Messiah King was born in a dirty trough in a stable. And he grew up in a one-horse dock called Nazareth. And the other great line of prophecy with the words, with you I am well pleased as a servant and the suffering servant. But you're first meant to think that all of the kingly rule and majesty of God is invested in the one of whom Isaiah said, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given. And here's a good text for the general election and the government shall be upon Jesus' shoulders. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. So which Davidic king is going to fulfill the prophecy all the way down until history comes to the Lord Jesus? And the words are not on the lips of Jesus. They are on the lips of his father who looks at him and he says, you are my son. And at that moment, God the father takes Nathan the prophet, Solomon the king, David the king, Psalm 2, Isaiah 9, and all the lines of prophecy that led to the one man who one day would be the ruler of humanity, and it's Jesus Christ. David could not sing Psalm 2 with perfect pitch. Solomon could not sing Psalm 2 with perfect pitch. Only Jesus can. Some of you will enjoy the nine lessons in Carols from Kings. It's one of these Christmas things that you just have to watch. It's not often great at four o'clock on Christmas Eve, but you know the beginning of the cow service, what happens? All the noise, all the choristers, and you get one solo chorister singing. What does he sing? Once in royal 
David's city stood a lowly cattle shed where a mother laid a baby, Jesus. One solo voice. You are my son. There's one man in history who is the king. There's one man in history who is the servant. There's one man in history who is the servant king. There's one man in history who is the servant king and the sacrificed son. There is one moment in history when the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, so intimate at his baptism, was ripped apart for you. And when you read the words of Psalm 2 again, they speak so powerfully of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in his way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now that's as far as we're going to get this warrior king is the servant and the sacrificed son. And what's the answer to this? Well, the answer is to respond to Jesus' words. Here come the band. We'll wait till they stop walking. The various things that come back to you about Pollock, like the creaking floor. There was a moment in service one, somebody came in, um, and I don't know why it is that her husband was sitting there, and if it was me, I would have just sat there. But she walked all the way around, and by the time that she got to there, there were 180 eyes going. <laughs> now listen. What does Jesus stand up and say? The king, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. What does Psalm 2 say? Kiss the Son. And kiss the Son means kneel before your sovereign, take his hand, and kiss his hand. Now, have you done that? Or like that student yesterday, do you need to know what the gospel is? That's the gospel. And we're all going to die. We are. And the world is not going to get better, and we're not going to beat cancer. And there will be wars and wars and wars, and Brexit will get even a bigger mess than it is, probably. And none of that touches Jesus one inch. And to have Jesus as your Savior is an extraordinary and wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. Make sure he is. Make sure he is. And God bless you as you do so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this glorious, glorious phrase, you are my son. And we pray that as we sing now, we will truly stand amazed in the presence that this wonderful Savior is mine. 
And Lord, if he is not yet somebody's, we pray that with new and fresh understanding, they would sing their way into everlasting peace and eternity. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, who came from this one-horse door, Nazarene, as a humble servant, and yet died as a king of kings, laying down his life.